The sermon text for today is Genesis chapter 20. We're really rolling along now in the book of Genesis, aren't we? We are moving along at light speed. Uh, Genesis chapter 20, and then the New Testament reading will be 1 Corinthians 1, verses 18 through 31. Let's hear now the word of the Lord. Genesis 20, verse 1. From there, Abraham journeyed toward the territory of the Negev and lived between Kadesh and Shur, and he sojourned in Gerar. And Abraham said to Sarah his wife, She is my sister. And Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent and took Sarah. But God came to Abimelech in a dream by night and said to him, Behold, you are a dead man because of the woman whom you have taken, for she is a man's wife. Now Abimelech had not approached her. So he said, Lord, will you kill an innocent people? Did he not himself say to me, She is my sister? And she herself said, He is my brother. In the integrity of my heart, in the innocence of my hands, I have done this. Then God said to him in the dream, Yes, I know that you have done this in the integrity of your heart, and it was I who kept you from sinning against me. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. Now then, return the man's wife, for he is a prophet, so that he will pray for you and you shall live. But if you do not return her, know that you shall surely die, you and all who are yours." So Abimelech rose early in the morning and called all his servants and told them all these things. And the men were very much afraid. Then Abimelech called Abraham and said to him, What have you done to us? And how have I sinned against you that you have brought on me and my kingdom a great sin? You have done to me things that ought not to be done. And Abimelech said to Abraham, What did you see that you did this thing? Abraham said, I did it because I thought there is no fear of God at all in this place, and they will kill me because of my wife. Besides, she is indeed my sister, the daughter of my father, though not the daughter of my mother, and she became my wife. And when God caused me to wander from my father's house, I said to her, This is the kindness you must do to me at every place to which we come. Say of me, He is my brother. Then Abimelech took sheep and oxen, and male servants and female servants, and gave them to Abraham, and returned Sarah his wife to him. And Abimelech said, Behold, my land is before you, dwell where it pleases you. To Sarah he said, Behold, I have given your brother a thousand pieces of silver. It is a sign of your innocence in the eyes of all who are with you, and before everyone you are vindicated. Then Abraham prayed to God, and God healed Abimelech, and also healed his wife and female slaves, so that they bore children. For the Lord had closed all the wombs of the house of Abimelech because of Sarah, Abraham's wife. Let us go now to 1 Corinthians 1, 18 through 31. 1 Corinthians 1, 18. There we read, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debtor of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to the Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, 
and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brothers. Here is what Paul writes to the Corinthian church, to the Christians there. Consider your calling. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of Him you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. So far the reading of God's holy word. May the Lord bless the preaching of it this morning. I can certainly understand it if when I was reading Genesis chapter 20, the thought came to you, this sounds like a familiar story. Haven't we covered this already? Um, Indeed, the story told in Genesis chapter 20 is very much like a story told in Genesis chapter 12, which we considered only a couple of months ago. The two stories are not identical. They do differ in some very important ways, but the similarities are very hard to miss. In both stories, Abraham and Sarah were on the move and came into the presence of powerful kings. In chapter 12, remember they sojourned down to Egypt, but here in chapter 20 we are told that they traveled down toward the Negeb, which is the dry desert region in the southern part of Canaan, and then from there to the east towards Gerar. Egypt we're very familiar with, aren't we? Gerar, not so much. It probably does not uh, ring a bell for you. Uh, But notice that the sojournings in both of these regions had the same effect upon Abraham. He began to fear. He began to fear that the powerful ones in the land would notice his wife and take her as their own, either because of her great beauty or for the purpose of political advancement. And he was afraid that they would then do him harm. And so in each instance, Abraham walked in fear And not by faith, as he urged his wife to lie about her identity, saying only that she was his sister. Now, as you know, uh, there was some truth to that lie, wasn't there? Uh, Sarah really was the half-sister of Abraham. We learn in this text that she was the daughter of his father, though not the daughter daughter of his mother. This, This sounds very strange to you and me, doesn't it? Uh, this whole arrangement. Um, In fact, the law that would come to Israel through Moses did forbid marriage between such close relatives. But remember that Abraham lived before the giving of that law, and he was brought up in a pagan land where marriages of this kind were not forbidden. Uh, So it sounds strange to us, but it wasn't so strange in that day. Uh, And we should notice there was some truth to the lie that Sarah and Abraham told. Sarah was indeed Abraham's sister. The daughter of his father, though not the daughter of his mother. Genesis 20, 12 says so. But it was still a lie, wasn't it? For half-truths are lies. We must remember that. Half-truths are lies. The full truth was that Sarah was Abraham's what? She was his wife. Here in Genesis 20, we learn that it was their agreed-upon mode of operation to lie in this way. Did you hear it in the text when Abraham was called by Abimelech, king of Gerar, to explain the deception? He said, among other things, when God caused me to wander from my father's house, I said to Sarah, 
This is the kindness you must do to me at every place to which we come. Say of me, he is my brother. It was their agreed upon mode of operation. We know that Sarah told this lie in Egypt and also in Gerar, for the scriptures tell us about those events. But I wonder, how many other times did Sarah and Abraham lie in this way, given that it was their agreed upon tactic since the day that they left Ur? We really don't know for sure, but it is at least possible that Sarah and Abraham told this lie many times, over and over again. Every time they came into the presence of some powerful king or kingdom, perhaps they told this lie. And it may even be that in every other instance the plan worked, where because Abraham said, this is my sister, they left the both of them alone, brothers having a particular responsibility to give their sisters away in marriage in that culture uh, where the, pre- the presence of parents were not. Who, who knows? Maybe it worked for them in every other instance. But in Egypt and in Gerar, the same terrible thing happened. Sarah was taken into the king's harem. The king and his servants were struck with some kind of curse or plague. Then the Lord appeared to the pagan kings to warn them so that Abraham was found out and he was confronted by these kings, after which he was rebuked by them, given gifts, and sent on his way. This happened in Egypt. This happened in Gerar. And so, yes, this story should sound very familiar to you. It's basically a repeat of the story that was told in Genesis chapter 12, verses 10 through 20. But here is my question. Why the repetition? Why did Moses, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, decide to tell what is essentially The same story twice. Why the repetition? Stated a little bit differently, what role does this particular story play in the overall narrative of Genesis? You know this is my view of the scriptures. Nothing is by accident. It should be your view as well. Uh, So much more could have been said concerning the life of Abraham than what was said. And the things that were said are said for a purpose. Uh, The order of things is also very intentional and deliberate. You know, Moses told the story to the children of Israel when he wrote the book of Genesis, and he did so for a reason. He told us the story of Genesis 12, 10 through 24, a reason, and here, after some time has passed, he wants us to know also about the repetition of this uh, shortcoming of Father Abraham. What is its purpose, I ask? I think there are three answers to that question. One, I think this story is told to promote humility within the children of Abraham. Two, I think the story is told to prevent pure pessimism concerning the wickedness of the nations. And three, I think this story is told to persuade the children of Abraham to tend to the garden of their souls, lest when they think they stand, they end up falling. So I want to consider the first point uh, Most carefully, we will devote the most time to this point, the first one, and then move rather quickly through points two and three later on in the sermon. But first of all, let us consider how this story promotes humility within the children of Abraham. How would the story promote humility within the children of Abraham? Now, imagine being one of Abraham's physical descendants. I want you to imagine being Isaac, perhaps, or even Jacob, the grandson of Abraham. In fact, you can imagine being any one of the people of Israel who lived under Moses up until the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. They descended from Abraham 
according to the flesh. Imagine being one of these children of Abraham according to the flesh. And if you were one of these, it would be right for you to think of yourself in this way. I am one of God's chosen people, right? I'm unique in the world. I've been set apart and I am distinct from the other nations. I have descended from Abraham's loins. I have been brought into a covenantal relationship between, with, with the God of, of heaven and on earth. All of this would be rightly said of you if you descended from Abraham according to the flesh. Indeed, prophets walked amongst you. You were in a unique covenantal relationship. You, as an Israelite, were entrusted with the promises of God. From you, the Christ would come. Indeed, it is no lie to say that it, it was a great privilege to be one of God's chosen people in that old covenant age. Paul spoke of the privileged position of the Hebrew people when he wrote, They are Israelites, and to them, the Israelites, belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. In other words, Paul is saying, what a privileged thing it was to be one of Abraham's physical descendants and of that nation called Israel. The Hebrew people who descended from Abraham according to the flesh were God's chosen people. And when I say that they were chosen, I mean, of course, that they were chosen according to the flesh. Their nation was set apart from other nations and given a place of privilege in the world. They were indeed a people uniquely blessed by God. And with this privilege, here is the point that I am trying to make, came the temptation to grow puffed up with what? Pride. Chosen of God. That teaching, if it is not properly understood, can lead to pride. And what I am saying is that the story of Genesis 20 is meant to deter pride and to promote humility amongst the Hebrews. How so? Well, I think this story demonstrates yet again that the election, calling, and blessing of Father Abraham was not based upon something deserving within him, but purely upon the grace of God. Therefore, when the Israelites thought of their election by God, it should have in fact produced humility within them and, and not pride. They should have thought to themselves, I am one of God's chosen people. And this not because of anything good in me or good in us, but by the grace of God alone. I say that this story demonstrates yet again that the election, calling, and blessing of Abraham was not based upon something deserving within him, but purely upon the grace of God. Because evidence for this is peppered throughout the Abraham's story. For example, Abraham was called not from a holy and righteous people, but out from amongst an idolatrous people. Joshua, who, who took the place of Moses as a leader within Israel, actually highlighted this. He was speaking to the nation of Israel as he's leading them into the promised land. And he talks to them concerning their heritage. And listen to the way that he talks. He says, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Long ago your fathers lived beyond the Euphrates, Terah, the father of Abraham, and Nahor, and they served other gods, he says. What a strange way to talk about your heritage. Don't we tend to like to talk about our heritage um, in more positive ways? Look at how great the history of our nation is. Look at how strong and powerful we are. Look at how superior we are. This is the way that peoples tend to talk about themselves. But here Joshua speaks to the nation of Israel, and what does he emphasize? He emphasizes the fact that 
There was nothing good in us and in our forefathers to make God say, I will choose them on the basis of their merit. But instead he says, don't forget it, people. Your forefathers worshipped other gods. They were idolatrous people. And God, by His mercy, called them out of that to make us into the great nation that we are today. This was what Joshua was emphasizing. Notice that Abraham's beginnings were by the grace of God alone. He was called out of a heathen context in order to follow God. And, and there are instances peppered throughout the Abraham story that indicate that God also preserved him by grace and not because of something meritorious found within him. I want you to notice that in this story that we have read in Genesis chapter 20, Abraham looks really bad, doesn't he? He comes across looking really silly. Uh, before Abimelech, king of Gerar. He lied yet again, and he made a mess of things yet again. God himself had to intervene in order to preserve Sarah, his wife. And, and by the way, all of this should be considered in light of the promises made both to Abraham and to Sarah that together they would have a son. Do not forget that very important promise made to them. Abraham, you're going to have a son, and then later the Lord clarified. And by the way, it's not going to be by some, some maidservant going to be through you, Sarah. You together will have a son. In fact, at this time next year, it will happen. Notice that in this narrative, Genesis 20, all of that was threatened yet again because Sarah was taken into the king's harem. Not only was Sarah endangered personally, but so too was the fulfillment of the promise of God concerning a son. How in the world would Abraham and Sarah have a son now that Sarah belonged to Abimelech, this foreign king, the king of Gerar? Perhaps you have noticed that this is a major theme in the narrative of Genesis up to this point. Remember that an offspring was promised both to Adam and to Abraham. And if you're tracking along in the story of Genesis, you'll notice that the evil one is constantly working against and threatening the fulfillment of that promise concerning a seed. I can give instant, one instance after the next uh, for this theme in the book of Genesis, the way that the evil one is working to thwart the purposes of God. And here we see that very thing happening. Notice also that when Abimelech, king of Gerar, finally confronted Abraham, Abraham ended up looking very foolish because ironically, Abimelech appeared to be more righteous than Abraham, didn't he? Here is Abraham, God's chosen one. Here is Abraham who is to walk before the Lord in an upright manner, uh, living righteously before him. But in verse 9, we see that Abimelech called Abraham and said to him, What have you done to us? And how have I sinned against you that you have brought on me in my kingdom? A great sin. You have done to me things that ought not to be done. Abimelech, this foreign and we might say heathen, non-believing king, ends up looking more righteous than Father Abraham. The point is this. Abraham made a mess of things when he decided yet again to live being driven by fear instead of living by faith. And Moses, when he wrote Genesis, he did not bury this unflattering story, but instead he highlighted it. This he did in part, I think, to check pride within ethnic Israel. This he did to promote humility within the children of Abraham. It's as if Moses said this, but in the form of a narrative, for consider your calling, brothers. 
Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose that which is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose that which is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. That, of course, is 1 Corinthians 1.18 and following. But I am saying that that same point made directly by the Apostle Paul in his writings, is made in narrative form throughout the book of Genesis, but particularly here, chapter 20. The Lord, by His grace, is doing something great in the life of Abraham and his descendants. It's unmerited favor being shown to Him. Brothers and sisters, I do not know of any within this congregation who are descendants of Abraham according to the flesh. Perhaps I... I'm just missing something here. I don't know of any who are Jews, ethnically speaking, Hebrews, ethnically speaking. But if you have faith in Christ, that is to say, if you have the faith of Abraham, then you are His children according to the Spirit and by faith. The Scriptures are very clear concerning this, saying, For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ, there is neither Jew nor Greek, There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, says the Apostle, then you are Abraham's offspring. Heirs, not according to the flesh, but heirs according to promise. Galatians 3, 27-29. And again, the same Apostle writes, That is why it depends on faith, in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all of Abraham's offspring, not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all, as it is written, I have made you the father of many nations, and the presence of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. In hope he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations, As he had been told, so shall your offspring be. That is the interpretation of Paul the Apostle in Romans 4, 16-18 concerning the offspring of Abraham. We are his offspring if we have faith in Christ. It is the faith of Abraham that we have. Therefore, he is our father according to the Spirit. If you are in Christ, you are a child of Abraham. You are his offspring, perhaps not according to the flesh, but by faith. And the Scriptures also call you chosen ones or the elect of God. Again, you are chosen not in a fleshly way, as the Hebrew people were, being set apart in the world based upon ethnicity. But you have been chosen in a spiritual way. You have been chosen in Christ Jesus. You have been particularly selected to belong to God through faith in the Christ whom He has sent. How any Christian who claims to have the Scriptures as their authority for truth can deny this, I'm not entirely sure, for it is so plainly set forth in the pages of Scripture. In John chapter 17, Jesus Himself prayed for a particular group of people who were given to Him by the Father. He prayed for them, that is to say for the elect, in this way, saying, I am praying for them, I am not praying for the world, But for those whom you have given me, for they are yours, as he spoke to the Father. He's praying for a particular group of people, not the world, but those given to him by the Father. In the book of Acts, we have record of the preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ to Jews and Gentiles alike. But in one place, we are told that as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. 
in a particular place. In other words, the gospel is preached. Many disregarded it, but some responded to it in faith. Who were they? They were those who were appointed to eternal life. They are the ones who believe. This is the doctrine of election. Many heard the gospel proclaimed that day in Antioch of Poseidia, but it was those who had been appointed to eternal life who responded in faith. Paul clearly teaches that if we are in Christ, it's because we are chosen by God. Romans chapter 8, he teaches that those in Christ were foreknown and predestined. Later in the same chapter, he calls those who have faith in Christ God's elect. And what does it mean for someone to be elect? It means that they have been chosen by someone for something. Isn't that what it means to be elect? If you are elect, it means that you've been chosen by someone for some purpose. And in this instance, it is the Christian who has been chosen by God for eternal life in Christ Jesus. If what Paul meant to say was that Christians are those who have chosen God, then why does he call them elect? That is, the chosen ones. Would he not have said that Christians are the choosing ones or the electing ones. If what he meant to say was that we are the ones who have chosen God, are you tracking along with me here? If what he meant to say is that Christians are the ones who are unique in the world because they chose God, then he would call us the electing ones, I guess, or the choosing ones if he wanted to use that language. But no, he instead looks to the Christian and he says, you are elect, you are elect of God in particular, he says. You are the ones who have been chosen by him. It was not we who first chose God, but God who chose us before the world was created. This Paul the Apostle explains more fully in Romans chapter 9 as he discusses God's purpose of election, to quote him. You can read it for yourself later today. Romans 8 and Romans 9 are very significant. I think I could state many more passages uh, from Paul's letters to demonstrate all of this to you, um, that you have ultimately been chosen by God. But... One of the clearest passages, and one of my favorites, is in Ephesians 1, 3 and following. It's there we read Paul's words again to the church in Ephesus. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He, that is the Father, chose us in Him, that is Christ. When did He do it? Before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love, he goes on to say, He, the Father, predestined us for adoption to Himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace, with which He has blessed us in the Beloved. It is very clear teaching here that the Apostle brings forth. If we are in Christ Jesus, we have been chosen by Him. He has elected us according to His sovereign good pleasure. He did this before He created the heavens and the earth. He knew you as His own before you were born. He predestined you. He chose you and set you apart. Again, when Christ prayed that priestly prayer in John 17, He prayed for you and not the world. When He died, He died for you and not the world. Nowhere, in no place do the Scriptures ever teach that Christ shed His blood to atone for the sins of those who were not given to Him. I want you to remember how he said, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays his life down for who? The sheep, he says. Here he is talking about the atonement, the death that he would die for others. He says, the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. And in another place, Christ says, for this is the blood of the covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Not all, but for many. 
And yet again, remember that husbands are to love their wives as Christ loved who? The church and gave himself up for her to sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she, the church, might be holy and without blemish. Who did Christ give himself up for? That is, who did he die for? He died for the church, those given to him by the Father, the elect, the chosen ones, who were set apart in eternity past unto God through faith in Christ for the glory of his name. Friends, if you love Christ, it is because he first loved you. Do you realize that? If you love Christ, it is because he first loved you. The faith that you have is a gift from God. It did not originate in your mind and heart, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing, the apostle wants you to know it. This is not your own doing. And he says it in another way. It is the gift of God. It didn't originate within you. It's something that God gave you. He gave you the gift of faith. It's by His grace. It's not a result of works. And why does Paul emphasize this? Why this teaching concerning election, predestination, God's sovereignty and salvation. Why? Paul tells us, so that no one may boast. So that no one may boast. Even your perseverance in Christ is by the grace of God. He will finish the good work that He has begun in each of His children. For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son, in order that He might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom He predestined... He also called, and those whom He called, He also justified, and those whom He justified, He also glorified. What is the Apostle saying to us here? He's saying that your salvation in Christ Jesus is ultimately God's work, and not yours. It is His work. It is something that He has done in you and for you. It is God's work. It is by His grace alone. Now, brothers and sisters, I do not doubt for a moment that you have done many things along the way as it pertains to your salvation. You've done many things. You did, in fact, choose Christ, didn't you? At some point, you decided to turn from sin and to Christ. You, you made that decision from the heart. You, in that moment, believed upon Him and called out to Him and said, You are my Lord. And it was you who did that, and not God for you, or on your behalf. You did it. And even today, you are choosing to remain in Christ. Did you not decide to rise up this morning, and instead of going about some other task, you, you gathered together with the people of God to give worship to God in this world? That was a decision that you made. You are persevering in Him, and this you must do to the end. These choices, all of them, are real choices. You have made them freely. You have made them willingly. But here is the deeper truth that the Scriptures also reveal. All of this is a gift. By grace you have been saved. It is all by God's grace. You have turned from sin to believe upon Christ because He has freed you from your natural bondage to make you willing and able to believe. Abraham was chosen by the grace of God, wasn't he? And not because of something deserving within him. The narrative shows us this clearly. 
So too Israel, as a nation, was chosen by the grace of God and not because of something meritorious in her. You understand that, right? I want you to listen to how the Lord spoke through Ezekiel the prophet concerning Israel's beginnings. Listen to Ezekiel the prophet as he talks about Israel. Again, the word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, make known to Jerusalem her abominations, and say, Thus says the Lord God to Jerusalem, Your origin and your birth are of the land of the Canaanites, he says. Don't forget where you came from. You were not a holy, pure, righteous people by nature. Your origin and your birth are of the land of the Canaanites. Your father was an Amorite and your mother a Hittite. And as for your birth, on the day you were born, your cord was not cut, nor were you washed with water to cleanse you, nor rubbed with salt, nor wrapped in swaddling cloths. No, I pitied you to do any of these things to you out of compassion for you, but you were cast out on the open field, for you were abhorred on the day when you were born. Sounds like a helpless situation for this child, doesn't it? And when I passed by you, the Lord says to Israel, and saw you wallowing in your blood, I said to you in your blood, live. I said to you in your blood, he repeats it, live. I made you flourish like a plant of the field, and you grew up and became tall and arrived at full adornment. And then on and on the prophet goes, the Lord speaking through him. What is his point? The prophet, the Lord is saying through the prophet Israel, why are you puffed up with pride? Understand that you were hopeless and helpless in the world. You were nothing at all. You were as good as dead, wallowing there in your blood, your cord not being cut, no one to care for you, no one to pity you. And yet I decided to give you life. You see, it was all by the sovereign grace of God, all by His unmerited favor that Israel was chosen by God. According to the flesh, they were chosen by Him. Of course, we know that not all in Israel had faith. In fact, many did not. They were chosen as a nation. They were chosen according to the flesh, as the Apostle puts it. But they were chosen by God's grace and not because of something deserving. And the same is true for all who are chosen by God to have salvation in Christ Jesus. Their election is based not upon some foreseen good in them, but in the sovereign good pleasure of the Lord. For by grace you have been saved through faith. Again, this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. And in another place we read, For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then, Paul says in Romans 9, 15 and 16, So then, here's the conclusion, it, that is election, depends not on human will or exertion. Do you hear it? Let me just make it plain and clear. Paul's talking about the doctrine of election. He says it absolutely, positively does not depend upon human will or exertion, but it depends on God who has mercy. He makes it so clear. And so, brothers and sisters, do you see that the narrative we are considering today in Genesis 20, indeed all that the Scriptures have to say concerning the election of Abraham, Israel, and those united to Christ by faith, Jew and Gentile alike, it's meant to promote humility amongst the children of Abraham. If our election and calling is grounded in the grace of God alone, 
If it is all of unconditional and unmerited favor, then there is no room at all for boasting. None at all. But if our election and calling is grounded in something in us, an inherent righteousness, or a faith that is foreseen by God from eternity past, or some other meritorious thing, then there is room for boasting, isn't there? If it is rooted and grounded in something in us, then there is room for boasting. I can make all of this very simple by asking you the question, the Christian, why did God choose you? Why did God choose you? That He chose you, elected you, selected you for some reason, and called you to Himself through faith in Christ. It's the plain teaching of Scripture. I don't know anyone who denies that. But here I am asking you the question, why did He choose you? And if your response begins with the words, because I, then it proves that you have badly misinterpreted the Scriptures. For then you would have grounds for boasting. Why did God choose you? Well, because He foresaw that I would do such and such a thing. Oh, but does not the Scripture, do not the Scriptures everywhere contradict that idea? Do not the Scriptures over and over again emphasize that it's not about you and your decision and your will? It's not about human decision, but it's about God who shows mercy. Do not the Scriptures say again and again that there is no grounds for boasting? That sounds like boasting to me. Why did God choose you? Well, because I. If that is your answer, then it reveals that you have badly misinterpreted the Scriptures. And so again, I ask, why did God choose you? And I pray that none of you would dare say, because God foresaw that I would believe, or because God noticed that I was searching for Him, or because God saw that I was morally upright, or because God knew that I would work extremely hard for His kingdom. None of these answers will do the trick, for they contradict the plain teaching of Scripture that your election depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. Indeed, if these answers were true, then you would have reason to boast before God and man, for the ground of your election and calling would then be found in you. But here is the truth. God has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love, He predestined us for adoption to Himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of His will. Did you hear it? According to what? What did He do this according to? What was the basis? According to what? The purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace with which He has blessed us in the Beloved. He decided to do it. That's what this was according to. And because of this, we will praise His glorious grace and never will we boast. Though you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind, God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, He made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And He raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace and kindness toward us in Jesus Christ. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are His workmanship. We are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we 
should walk in them. Ephesians 2, excerpts from verses 1 through 10. I do have two more points to make in this sermon. And I only have a very short time to make them. And so these will be more like observations than fully developed points. Why the story of Genesis 20 is the question I have asked. One, I do think it promotes humility amongst the children of Abraham, clarifying yet again that Abraham was chosen and called by grace alone and not because of something meritorious within him. And two, I think the story is told to prevent pure pessimism concerning the wickedness of the nations. I think this story helps to prevent pure pessimism concerning the wickedness of the nations. What does pessimism mean? It's when you look at a situation and you just think the worst possible thing about it, right? Do you remember the story of Genesis 19? I hope you do. There we were told of the great wickedness of Sodom and Gomorrah and the destruction of that place. We learned of God's wrath having been poured out upon it. And if we are not careful, we might begin to assume that all of the nations and all of the non-believing peoples within those nations are as wicked as that. Are you tracking with me? We were just told of Sodom and Gomorrah, great wickedness. Abraham looking over it going, uh, what, you know, interceding on behalf of that people with the Lord. And it's just, it's obliterated, devoted to destruction. Um, and so we might be able to begin to assume that, that that's how the nations are, all of them, that wicked. The doctrine of total depravity is a very important doctrine. I need to state that first and foremost. It recognizes that man, by his fall into a state of sin, has wholly lost all ability of will to do any spiritual good accompanying salvation. So as natural man, being altogether averse from that good and dead in sin, is not able by his own strength to convert himself or prepare himself thereunto. That's a very good summary of the doctrine of total depravity. Is there anyone who is ultimately good in the world? What do we say? No. Is there anyone who keeps God's law perfectly? What do we say? No. Is there anyone who is by nature alive to God and able to run to God on his own in His own strength without the, the, the grace of God being poured out upon them? We say, no, we are totally depraved. In that way, every aspect of our being has been affected by the fall so that our minds have been distorted, our our hearts are impure. Our will is bent in the wrong direction. We're totally depraved. This doctrine of total depravity is a very important doctrine. But it would be careless of us to assume that all men and women are equally wicked. Are you tracking along with me here? It would also be careless for us to assume that men and women never do good at all. For I think that they do. It's not an ultimate good. It's not ultimately good before the Lord because it's not proceeding from faith into His glory. But I think that men and women do do good in the world. There is no one good but God alone. But men and women, even those who are not in Christ, do do good. But even this is by the mercy of God. I think this principle is very clearly illustrated in this passage. Did not the heathen king Abimelech act more righteous than Abraham, who was chosen and called by God and made righteous through faith in Christ, the Christ who had come. Did he not act more righteous than Abraham? Abraham, notice, did what he did because he thought there was no fear of God at all in that place and that they would kill him because of his wife, Genesis 20, 11. 
In fact, it seemed as if the people of Gerar feared the Lord more than Abraham did, as this narrative unfolds, at least in that moment, verse 8. Abimelech was deeply distressed over the thought that almost, of almost having committed such a great sin, he calls it. He's referring to the sin of adultery as a great sin. Is this Abraham saying it? No, it's Abimelech, king of Gerar, who is saying it. This would have been a great sin had I committed it. And Abimelech, after confronting Abraham, did the right thing. He took sheep and oxen and male servants and female servants and gave them to Abraham and returned Sarah, his wife, to him. And I love this part of the story. Abimelech said, Behold, my land is before you dweller where it pleases you. To Sarah, he said, Behold, I have given your brother a thousand pieces of silver. He takes a jab at Abraham, doesn't he? And at Sarah. I've given your brother a thousand pieces of silver. It is a sign of your innocence in the eyes of all who are with you and before everyone that you are vindicated. And so in this instance, Abimelech walked with integrity in his heart. His hands were innocent. Look at verse 5. But why did he do this? How was it that Abimelech was able to do good and to do right in this instance? Notice what the Lord said to Abimelech in verse 7. Yes, he responds to Abimelech saying, I know that you have done this in the integrity of your heart. It is true. The Lord agrees. There was integrity in Abimelech's heart. He, he did the right thing out of the integrity of his heart. How? And it was I who kept you from sinning against me. Therefore, I did not let you touch her, says the Lord. So notice why. The Lord was active even amongst the people of Gerar and even within the heart of Abimelech the king. This is why I say that this passage prevents the children of Abraham from pure pessimism concerning the wickedness of the nations. For it reveals that the Lord is merciful to restrain evil in the world and to promote good even amongst those who do not worship Him. The doctrine of total depravity is so important. We must uphold it and proclaim it as true. But there is more to be said. The Lord is also active, even within the non-believing world, to restrain sin, to restrain evil. Have you ever thought about that? Some call this doctrine the doctrine of common grace. And I think it is a very important complement to the doctrine of original sin and total depravity, for it helps us to understand how it can be that we are surrounded by many who are not in Christ and yet seem to us to be good people. Have you noticed that? I know you work with some of these. I know you rub shoulders with some of these in the community. They are not good in an ultimate sense, neither are we by nature. Um, nor are they good with God, for none are apart from faith in Christ. They have violated God's law and thought, word, and deed, just as we have. But there are good people in the world, in a sense. And what is this owed to? This is owed to also the mercy of God. The grace of God that He would restrain evil in the world. That He would keep people from being fully given to their total depravity so that they would be kept from running headlong into wickedness, becoming as wicked as they possibly could be were it not for God's gracious intervention. I think this is an important doctrine for us to recognize. There is none good but God alone. All are alienated from God and guilty before Him. And yet when you talk to your neighbor who seems to be such a nice person, such a good and kind and caring person, I think it is good to look at that situation and say, here also is evidence of God's mercy in the world. That He would restrain evil in the world, even amongst those who do not 
belong to Him through faith in Christ. Thirdly and lastly and very briefly, the story that we encounter in Genesis 20 ought to persuade the children of Abraham to tend to the garden of their souls, lest when they think they stand, they fall. Here I'm making only this simple observation. I want you to think of how old Abraham and Sarah were at this point. Think of how many times the Lord had given His promises to them and how many times He had proved Himself faithful. And yet here they are making the same mistake again that they had made so many years ago when they went down into Egypt. It seems that they forgot the disastrous situation that 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 decision brought about. It seems that they forgot uh, the kindness of the Lord and His faithfulness to them. And there they are sinning the same sin yet again, lying concerning Sarah's identity. Brothers and sisters, the point is this. We cannot afford to grow complacent with sin. We must fight against it daily and be forever vigilant in our battle against temptation. No matter how much we mature in Christ, no matter how old we get, we must be on guard always, lest the evil one overtake us. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time He may exalt you, casting all your anxieties upon Him because He cares for you. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, and he's seeking someone to devour. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed, lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, He will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to to endure it. Brothers and sisters, may we also, may we always take the way of escape. May the Lord help us in these things. Let's bow together for a word of prayer. Father in heaven, help us to understand the truth of your word. It will benefit us in many ways, of course. One of the things that it will help us to do is never, ever, ever boast in your presence. Father, may we see clearly what your scriptures teach from beginning to end, that if we are in Christ, if we have been made right before you, if we are your chosen ones, it is by your grace alone. If there is pride in our hearts at all, Lord, drive it out, we pray. As we consider our right relationship with you, our adoption as sons and daughters, may we be absolutely blown away and floored that you would make us, who are naturally your enemies, your children and your friends. God, we thank you for your grace and mercy. We thank you also for the way that you restrain evil in the world today. We look around us and we grieve over the wickedness that we see, but we also confess it could be far, far worse. And so we thank you for your restraining power. Lord, we pray that you would work within our culture and our world to restrain evil and wickedness, that we might live at peace. Father, above all, we do pray that you would draw sinners to repentance so that they might come to have you as Lord. Father, as we walk in this world, as your people, as your chosen people, holy and beloved, help us, Father, to fight against sin and temptation day by day. May we never grow complacent, Lord. Make us vigilant. Make us aware. um, Make us sober concerning the many tactics of the evil one who would want to distract us from Christ and pull us away from a constant walk with him. Do this for our good and your glory, we pray in Christ's name and all of God's people say, Amen.